Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. The authority of Josh Crawford and Travis Stevens. What a scandalous sermon title. It's scandalous for two reasons. The first is very understandable, and I mean that. The church is replete with horrific, traumatic, at times abusive incidences of church authority. And the stories of fallen pastors are coming out at breakneck speed, and it's almost overwhelming the culture of church leadership in our day. So I understand reservation toward the idea of church authority. There's another reason for aversion to authority, and this one is less virtuous. We live in an age of radical individualism and human autonomy. It manifests itself in what can only be labeled as a disdain for authority, more particular institutional authority, and worst of all, institutional religious authority. Let me read a quote from Brad Pitt where he explains why he is into spirituality but against organized religion, which I think we can all agree is a very common disposition in our culture these days. This is what Brad Pitt says. He says, I call religion oppression because it stifles any kind of personal individual freedom. The article says this, to Pitt, the parable of the prodigal son is an authoritarian tale told to keep people in line. This, Brad Pitt explains, is a story which says if you go out and try to find your own voice and find what works for you, what makes sense for you, then you are going to be destroyed and you will be humbled and you will not be alive again until you come home to the Father's ways. That is oppression. Close quote. What a fascinating take on a, on a parable that we love so dearly. Through the eyes of Pitt, and I think he is emblematic of our culture, it comes across as an oppressive parable that stifles individual freedom, expression, and so forth. And I don't think he is alone. I think he is emblematic of where we find ourselves. And so into this cultural setting, we gathered this morning for a most countercultural ritual, the ordination of ministers to whom you will vow in a moment submission. Whether for good or bad reasons, 
You may view that as weird at best, and I understand that. You might be coming to us from a church tradition that doesn't take ordination so seriously where we would have a a big worship service and take vows and all these things. You might view this service as weird at best or perhaps offensive at worst. Well, here's what I would like to ask of you this morning. I would like you to suspend all presuppositions and, yes, even your experiences that you may have, and give me a chance to unpack the vision of authority that we see in this passage this morning, wherein Peter exhorts the minister on how they are to do church authority. Certainly, Peter believes in submission to elders of a local church. This is clear. But it would seem it is far more important to him how those elders exercise authority, how pastors do authority. Let's follow his admonition through three points. The mode of church authority, the manner of church authority, and the motive of church authority. So mode, manner, and motive. Let's start with the mode and just take a brief moment to make sure everyone understands the biblical structure of church authority. I don't want to make any assumptions. It may be foreign to you. Peter says in verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. The word elder in the New Testament is the title given to those set apart as the ordained authority over a local church. The Greek word is presbyter, from which we get the title of our tradition, Presbyterian. So the pattern of church authority in Scripture is this. Christ, who is the head of the church, first gave authority to the apostles. That's why the Scriptures say that the church is built on the foundation of of the apostles. Now, the foundation of the apostles is not the apostles themselves. They were actually quite unimpressive men. Instead, the authority is built upon their witness, that they witnessed the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's why Peter here notes that he was a witness to Christ's suffering. And so the witness of the apostles is canonized in Scripture. The New Testament is the written witness of Christ's apostles. So when we say that the foundation of the church is the apostles. When we confess that we believe in an apostolic church, what we are saying is we believe the foundation of authority is the Holy Scriptures. That is the ultimate highest authority within church authority, the Bible. But then the apostles did something interesting. They appointed elders in every local church and entrusted to these presbyters authority over that church. Now, elder does not speak to uh, maturity of age, but maturity of character. They're actually teenage elders in the New Testament. So it's much more about character than it is your age. And you can go read the characteristics of maturity that is expected in Titus 1. These two have already uh, been tested and examined according to those qualifications for an elder. So the mode of church authority is this. Jesus is the head of the church. The head entrusted authority to the apostles, which was canonized in Scripture, and they then entrusted their authority to local elders, and that elder authority over local churches remains to this day. And we see this in no uncertain terms in verse 2. This is what he says to elders, this is what he says to you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That is very extreme language, again, in the culture we inhabit. Elders are literally asked to shepherd the flock that belongs to the good shepherd, Jesus. Travis and Josh, 
let those words land with the holy weight they deserve. You are choosing to embrace the highest responsibility here on earth. To the flock in general, but particularly to our Richmond folks. Let those words land with the holy weight they deserve. You are choosing to submit to Travis and Josh as though they are shepherds given to you from the good shepherd himself. So this verse, exercise authority, this verse should cause both the pastor and the flock to tremble for different reasons. And Peter recognizes the weight of his words, which is why he takes a moment to qualify them. What he does is he makes clear exactly what that authority should look like. Let's turn now to the manner of church authority. What Peter uh, does here is define expectations for church authority through three contrasting statements in verse 2 and 3. You'll see that uh, separated by those semicolons. He has a pattern here. He basically says, not like this, but like this, repeated three times. And each of them is meant to expose and confront common failures when it comes to church authority. The first is this from verse 2. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So here Peter's combating um, the notion of obligation. Now obligation may seem like a strange reason to get into the ministry, but many do it for that very reason. They do it because they feel like they have to. They have no choice. Yes, at times that is an external pressure from a congregation, but, but more often it is born out of our own insecurities Guilt, ambition, or whatever else creates this feeling that I have to do this to prove myself to God, to others, perhaps even to myself. But Peter is saying, you don't have to do this. And you don't. Josh and Travis, you don't have to do this. Christ's church will be just fine without you, without me, without Mark, without Will. Obligation is a horrible reason to go into the ministry And you will get burned out very quickly if that is why you're doing this. Instead, Peter says, do this willingly as God would have you. Meaning, do this because you believe God has called you to do this and for no other reason. All right, the next contrasting statement. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, in the early church, the shameful gain that Peter is speaking of there was associated with Money. Uh, the church w- um, organized itself and, and ran off of fundraising, and elders had this ability to raise funds for the local church. And uh, sadly, many of them were tempted to do it and exploit funds and whatnot for their own gain. I can definitively say that's not the case with these two. Uh, they're gifted young men. They could be making a lot of money if they chose another vocation. Money is not the reason they're getting into this. But money is not the only temptation of what Peter calls shameful gain. There is a reason, if you've noticed, there is a reason why so many narcissists go into ministry. It offers the very thing the narcissist craves. Glory, influence, vanity, power, self-righteousness, And on and on we can go. The point Peter is making is that authority cannot be motivated by selfish ends. And guys, it can't. Test yourself one more time before they lay their hands on you. Of course, your 
motives are mixed and impure and the grace of Jesus can handle that duplicity. He certainly can in my life. But the foundational reason, the core motivation, you are sitting here this day must not be shameful gain. It is a fearful thing to stand before Jesus after exploiting his flock for your selfish ends. Instead, Peter says, you are to shepherd eagerly. I agree with most commentaries that say that that word is best translated eager to serve. The point, the antithesis of shameful gain is that you are instead eager to serve, to give. The point is that this is a strange authority that is assumed not for what you can gain from it, but for what you can give. Not take, but to serve. What a countercultural picture of authority. In every other realm, people assume the weight, the responsibilities, the burdens, the sufferings, and everything else that comes with the mantle of leadership. They take that on because it offers them something. They will gain something from that position, and that trade-off is worth it. But here, there is no gain. You accept the immense burdens of authority, and the trade-off is that you have to give your life away to those under your authority. Pastoral ministry, rightly done, takes all the burdens while the flock gets all the gains. It's not a good deal, earthly speaking, but this is the expectation of church authority nonetheless. Okay, final contrasting statement about how we are, about to, how we are to do church authority. Verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, notice that Peter does not compromise the extent of church authority here. He says, those in your charge. That is what it is. By virtue of your holy ordination, you are in charge. Underneath the charge of Christ, of course. So this is not compromising authority. It is speaking instead to the way authority is done. Not domineering over them. Now, how do we distinguish that? That's an important question for congregants as well. How do we know if authority is domineering authority? Because the pastor has to rebuke, has to reprove and teach and train and discipline and exercise judgments. So how do we know if that is domineering leadership or healthy leadership? Well, look at the antithesis here. It's not domineering, but being examples to the flock. This is really important. Peter doesn't see the antithesis of domineering leadership as not having expectations for those that they lead. He sees it as embodying what they expect from their people. How do you exercise authority without domineering? With a me-first mentality. You will call them to repentance with your repentance. You call them to vulnerability with your vulnerability. You call them to holiness with your holiness. You ask them to sacrificially give by your sacrificial giving. You call them to control their tongues by your refusal to gossip and slander. You call them to love the poor in the community with your love of the poor. Guys, the way to know that you are not domineering as a leader is that you demand nothing from the flock that you are not already doing. And church, your people, an authority you should never submit to is one that demands from you what they are unwilling to do. Okay, now, with those three 
qualifying statements in mind, allowing our visions of church authority to be formed less by our experiences and culture and more by these three statements, I want to turn now to the congregation, all of you, but more specifically those who will be at the Richmond Church Plant. I will ask you this. Will you submit to this authority? I'm not asking you to submit to the authority like the world does authority. I'm asking, can you submit to authority like this? Now, your answer may still be no. Some of you may still say no. For whatever reason, you just can't do the church membership vows submission to authority thing. Well, speaking candidly, you have another problem on your hands. We need authority. We were made for authority in our very design. In fact, authority is inevitable. Shunning external authority is only a choice to submit to the internal authority of self. When people say, and they often say it, I'm into spirituality, not organized religion. What they are saying is I'm what they're saying is I am into the organized religion of the self, which always proves just as tyrannical as all other forms of authority. Let me read from Brad Pitt again. Very vulnerable moment in that same article. I start asking a lot of questions about my own life, and it's not fun. I've always been at war with myself, for right or wrong. I don't know how, explain, how to explain it more. I'm just trying to grow comfortable with being in that war. You see, he's trapped. He casts off external authority only to discover the mayhem of self-tyranny. And this is true for all of us. I'm sure authority has harmed you. It's harmed me. But have you harmed you? If you're anything like me, then you have proven to be the worst possible authority over your life. What you need, what I need, what we all so desperately need is a different kind of authority. And that authority, on an ultimate level, is Jesus. Make no mistake, Jesus is all about authority. I don't know how he's been presented to you But let me make it clear, he does not invite you to make a decision but to bow in submission. But his authority is the perfect embodiment of what Peter is describing in our passage. And then our good shepherd, who from his authority lays down his authority to his sheep, calls his sheep to submit to his ordained under-shepherds as a manifestation of his authority on earth. Now, I know these brothers very well, and they are good men, but they are no Jesus. He needs, they need Jesus as much as you and I. But I am going to put my name, my integrity on the line here. I, we we officers, elders, would never place them before you if we were not 100% confident that they will seek to lead you as Jesus has led them. We love you way too much as a church to ever ask you to submit to unhealthy authority. But yes, we are asking you to submit nonetheless. Now, I would like to ask one more brief question from the text directed at just these two brothers. With Peter's redefined vision of authority, which, speaking candidly, is nothing 
less, then you're going to have to lay your life down for the sheep, just like Jesus did for you. The question is, why would anyone in their right mind ever accept ordination in the church of Jesus Christ? Let me briefly close with the motive of church authority. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now notice something very important. When will you have it? Not now. If you think this calling is going to reward you, prepare to be massively disappointed. It has its own unique wars and there rewards and there will be moments of pure joy. Wouldn't trade it for anything, but ordained ministry makes life harder, not easier. What is awaiting you on the other side of this day is the never-ending drama and trauma of congregational care. What awaits you are judgments and decisions that will keep you up all night. What awaits you is criticism, disappointment, perhaps even maligned and slandered by the very ones you love. What awaits you is the crosshairs of satanic attack. And most painful, what awaits you is the stark realization of your unworthiness. If you thought you knew your unworthiness now, wait until ordained ministry. Your doubts, fears, sins, insecurities, and utter hypocrisy will shine like never before. So what are y'all doing here? Why would you ever choose this? Let me tell you why. More precisely, I will let the Apostle Peter, upon whom the church was built, tell you why. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I don't know what that means. But I do know there is a unique glory waiting those who would dare embark upon this unique calling. I know that what we read in this hymn, when this moment comes, O may thy soldiers faithful, true, and bold fight as the saints who nobly fought of old and win with them the victor's crown of gold. Your crown's going to be unique. Lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. And I want you to picture this, brothers. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The king of glory passes on his way. And the king of glory is going to stop in his tracks and look you in your eyes with pride in his eyes. And those whom you have faithfully served in ministry are going to rise and applaud and shout their amens of gratitude to your coronation. I know in that moment it will be worth it. Josh and Travis, do not do this for earthly rewards. Don't even do it for them. Do this for Jesus. Do this for the unfading crown of glory that Jesus himself with nail-scarred hands is going to place upon your head. Let me pray. Father, I pray my brothers and their wives would feel your pleasure that as they prepare to take their vows and have hands laid upon them, that those hands they would feel would be the hands of the Good Shepherd who is pleased with them. 
I pray for the people they would lead, that they would find freedom in their leadership. They would find love and care in their leadership. Lord, keep them from domineering authority, but let them set an example. Let them embody what they long to see from their congregation. And Lord, we thank you for the church. Lord, we, we are the first to admit it's a messy institution full of many problems. But generation after generation, you have continued to raise up leaders that the kingdom might move on. Bless our church. Bless our new church in Richmond. And bless these brothers. In Jesus' name, amen.